so I'm building on the theme that, um, for this conference that comes out of 2 Corinthians, uh, the idea of trying to understand and engage who Jesus is on, on, on not just maybe a shallow level, but on a much more robust level. Um, uh, Glenn Stassen, who taught at uh, Fuller Seminary for many years, a wonderful ethicist, um, called it a thicker Jesus. I like that description, a thicker Jesus, a, a deeper understanding of Jesus that informs our spiritual lives and our ministry. And that's uh, when we look at this passage, we see that uh, the identity of Christ and followers of Christ is found in both and, both the spaces of comfort, celebration, and joy, but also in places of distress and suffering. That uh, And I would argue, particularly in the Western church context, we are naturally drawn towards, and that's our social, cultural, historical reality, that's our philosophy, the hyper-individualism, the kind of the achievement orientation of Western society. We are naturally drawn to the success, uh, comfort, uh, celebration model uh, that we see in, in Scripture. Um, and that oftentimes leads us away from or uh, creates a barrier for us to engage the more suffering, distress models that we also find in Scripture. So part of what I said yesterday was that lament uh, is what is necessary in, as a response to, and I'm going to go deeper into that topic a little bit, uh, as a response to the social cultural reality that I just described, that our culture, particularly in the West, particularly in the U.S., uh, gravitate towards a, uh, a comfort and celebration modality, and lament offers the counter to that. I'm going to go a little deeper into that context, but I wanted to set up our conversation so far. And uh, the, the good work that was done on this is by Walter Brueggemann. He's an Old Testament scholar, uh, taught in Atlanta for many, many years at uh, Columbia Seminary. Um, and Brueggemann, uh, in his book, uh, Peace, um, and uh, he writes about the word, the biblical word shalom. And the word shalom, as many of you know in the Old Testament, is oftentimes translated into English as peace. The problem with that is, again, as many of you could deduce, is that there, there are so many words in one language that when you try to translate into another language, it's very, very difficult. There's no kind of equivalence. Um, one um, example of this is in, in Korean. Uh, there's a word that is, I think, almost untranslatable into English because it's actually based upon an experience. And the word is starbon. And it, um, the experience is putting an unripe persimmon in your mouth, and your mouth feels like it's all dried up, starbon. Now, how do you translate that into English, into one word? I'm sure you could, but it doesn't quite get the essence of that experience of putting an unripe persimmon in your life, a mouth, and your like, whole mouth is like dried. And it's just, again, it's hard to translate that word. And I would say it's a similar thing with, with the word shalom. So the way we've used the word shalom in English is peace. But in English, peace is almost always translated as what? The absence of war. That's part of our culture. We've, we're constantly in war. We're constantly in some kind of skirmish, and there's constantly war all around us. So the idea of peace is, well, when we don't have war, that's when we have peace. And our marches for peace are to end the war. So 
that's kind of an imagination that we have around the word peace. Uh, the Hebrew word shalom, that's not the equivalence. It's not just the absence of peace, which is, again, the way we translate it into English. But the word shalom, as Bergman is trying to point out, is the fullness of God. Uh, there's a huge difference there, right? It's not the absence of something. It's the fullness and completeness that is present when God is, when God is there. So that distinction is important, uh, and, and Brueggemann argues for this, because it changes maybe the way we understand theology. So oftentimes when we talk about theology, we kind of draw the boundaries and say, if you're inside, as in you got all the right definitions, then you get theology. But if you're outside, then you don't get theology. Whereas what Brueggemann argues is theology, especially shalom theology, is the presence of the fullness of God. Not to say you're in, you're out, this is good, this is wrong, but to understand the fullness of the presence of God. Because of that understanding of shalom, um, you need different perspectives in order to get the fullness of the presence of God. So we're going to flesh that a little bit more, but I wanted to put up here uh, Brueggemann's understanding of shalom uh, divided into two categories. Uh, he calls it the theology of the haves, which is the left-hand column, and the theology of the have-nots, which is the right-hand column. And also asks that this is the theology of celebration and the theology of suffering. Now, what you might notice is that those theologies, or this understanding of theology, the haves and the have-nots, is quite dependent on one's social setting, uh, quite dependent on one's lived reality and experiences. It doesn't change the gospel necessarily. It changes how one understands that reality, so uh, out of their reality. So on the left-hand column, you, are, you see the haves. So if you have good things, what, what do you want to do with those good things? Well, you manage and steward those good things. If you have good things, you flourish in a world that treats you fairly well. And so you view the world as a fairly good place that you can live in. If you have good things, life is already healthy, already complete, already whole. You feel like you've already experienced shalom because you are living in the abundance of these good things. Uh, God is, in, in this context, God is oftentimes portrayed as a nurturer, oftentimes feminine, uh, but you see this in the Psalms, like uh, chicks to a mother hen, I long to gather you and, and protect you and care for you. Uh, that sense of I have the comfort, the security, the protection, the flourishing provision of God. Uh, and because these things are good for you, you're in a good place on this earth, you're flourishing, uh, you want to maintain the status quo. Why would you want things to change when things are good? Why would you want things to change when you are living in abundance and affluence and you have good things? Uh, this would be a pretty good description of American culture in particular. We have good things, and we don't want that lifestyle to be disrupted. That's why we don't like war. Not so much that you know, we're not warlike people, but we like having the good things that we already have. We don't want gas prices to be $6 a gallon. We want it to be back to $3 a gallon. I never thought I'd say that, back to $3 a gallon. <laughs> but we liked the status quo when things were a certain way. When our 401ks and our, what is it, uh, 501s, well, all those numbers that with our retirement, when they were at a certain point, we wanted it to be at that point. We want our housing prices to keep going up because we own housing. Do you see how like a person's understanding of the world could be shaped by being a have? 
Now, uh, Brueggemann argues that there's another side to this story, which is, what is a theology of suffering that emerges out of the have-nots? So instead of managing and stewarding resources because you have them, well, if you don't have the resources, you don't manage and steward them, what do you do? You survive day to day. You just kind of make it through the day on the budget that you have. Here's the way I can tell a difference between a church that is about celebration and the haves and a church that is about survival and are the have-nots. Churches that are about celebration and are the haves will have workshops in their church about estate planning. Right? <laughs> How do you plan for when you pass on, what percentage are you going to give to the church? Let's plan that out so that you get less of a tax burden. So those are the churches that have resources, and you're trying to manage and steward those resources. The have-nots, what are the workshops there? How are you going to make it through the way, the, throughout this week? How are you going to budget so that you don't, you're, not, you're not in debt by the end of that, that month? Um, and I've worked in both affluent suburban church contexts, and I've worked in poor urban contexts. And the way folks talk about money, clearly there's a difference because one group doesn't have any resources, so they're trying to make it week by week, day to day, and another group has resources, and they're trying to steward those and manage those resources well. You can see how there's a differentiation in these two categories. Uh, for the have-nots, um, you see the world not as generally good, but as generally evil, because you're not flourishing in this world. This world seems to be against you, and you're fighting up against the world. Life is precarious, needing a deliverer, and oftentimes God is portrayed as a warrior or a masculine figure. So one of the things that you'll notice differently, is, as I mentioned yesterday as well, is the differentiation of the Psalms. And there are certain, certain Psalms that says, like, chicks to a mother hen, I will gather you, living under the shadow of God's wings. There are some wonderful images of God providing protection and shelter, and you're safe in that space. But then there are those, what we might call problematic passages, especially those of us in the West. Those are the passages that says, Lord, come and break the teeth of my enemy. Shatter their bones. And, and then we're like, whoa, what's going on here? Well, if your world is generally good, you don't want things to get disrupted. You don't want the powers to be disrupted because those powers serve you. But if the world is generally evil, uh, you want God to come and smite your enemies because you're not surviving in a world or barely surviving in that world. And that's why your orientation is not keep the status quo, but fight injustice. Can you see how the haves and the have-nots uh, emerge out of a different understanding of how theology works? So let me give you a more uh, concrete illustration on this. Um, let's use a hypothetical. Um, let's go to, well, let's walk down the street to Malibu uh, and go to one of these huge houses and, uh, as you know, the, the uh, uh, what is that, the compounds that are, Blocked off, but somehow we sneak in into that gated community and we knock on the door of this biggest house that we see in Malibu. It's Adam Sandler. So we knock on the door and, and uh, a 16 year old girl answers the door. And we ask this 16 year old, uh, Tell me, we're taking a survey, a religious survey, and uh, we want to know what you think heaven is going to be like. If you were to go to heaven, what would you see? And a 16 year old living in a mansion in Malibu is probably going to say something like, Oh, heaven's going to be incredible. Because here on earth, um, I have a Dell desktop. But when I get to heaven, I'm getting a Mac Airbook. And I'm getting an Air, uh, 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 Air, uh, uh, AirPad and all these great things. I I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really upgrade my, my computer game here. Um, 
Here on earth, I have a Toyota Yaris that gets me. I got it for my 16th birthday, and I drive around the neighborhood. It's kind of embarrassing. I'm driving a Toyota Yaris. When I get to heaven, I'm getting a Lamborghini, getting a, a, a Ferrari. Uh, here on earth, I've got this tiny little TV in my room. It doesn't get that many channels. But when I get to heaven, I'm getting an 85-inch plasma, full setup, 4K, 5K, all that stuff with full satellite hookup and surround sound. Now, for a 16-year-old on earth with already good things, heaven can be seen as something more of already the good things you already have. Maintain the status quo. Keep the flourishing and keep the good uh, things you have. Now, let's take that exact same question, but go to a very different context and set of circumstances. Let's go to uh, Haiti after an earthquake. Uh, let's go to uh, uh, Southeast Asia after a tsunami. Uh, let's go to uh, Poland and, and Hungary uh, with all the refugee camps of Ukrainian war refugees. Uh, let's go to Darfur, Sudan at the height of the Civil War and all those refugee camps. Lebanon, when the Syrian refugees found their way there. Let's go to these places where it's a completely different set of circumstances. But ask the exact same question. What is heaven like to you, to a 16-year-old girl in Darfur, Sudan, in the midst of the Civil War? And she'll say, heaven is nothing like where I am right now. Heaven is nothing like what I'm experiencing. Heaven is a place where there's actually water and food nearby. I don't have to walk miles to get water that's not even clean. Heaven is nothing like this. Heaven is a place where I'm not worried about getting raped and killed every night of my life. Heaven is a place where my parents aren't dead because the Janjaweed warriors came and completely uh, laid waste my village. Heaven is nothing like what I'm experiencing right now. Now, let's think about these two, both 16-year-olds, living in very different set of circumstances, and how their view of heaven is actually both correct. But we've got to hear both their stories in order to get the full picture of heaven. I do think that heaven will be like what we see on earth and greater versions of it. But there will be things about heaven that will say, where did this come from? I have no idea what this is, because it's not like what we've experienced here on earth. You need both of those stories together to get the full picture of heaven, the shalom understanding of theology. Now, part of the problem has been historically, we who are in the place of celebration, we who are the haves, have naturally assumed that it is our job to take all of our blessings and dump it over there on those who do not have those blessings. We write a check. We, we fill a shoebox with filled with yo-yos and, and, and dolls, and, and we dump it over there among those poor people, and that's supposed to be the fulfillment of our community. When actually, my theology is incomplete unless I hear from that 16-year-old in Darfur. My theology isn't quite up to what God wants to know, wants to teach me about the fullness and the shalom of who he is, unless I hear that story. So that's our view of heaven, but that's also our Christology. And this is where it comes to the thicker Jesus. So this is interesting for me as a theologian and has, having traveled in these academic circles around theology. Um, so if you go to these Western conferences, uh, U.S.-based conferences on theology, there is an obsession with the atonement theory on Christology. I don't know if you know this. Uh, and I've noticed in terms of, the, if I go through like the literature over the last 30 years, the volume of books written and the, the blood spilt 
and almost fisticuffs that I've seen at these conferences about what is the atonement all about? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did he suffer? There is a huge volume of literature and a whole lot of academic ink spilled on this. I know some of you might know this, the idea of why did Jesus die on the cross? What is atonement theory? And there's really some significant battles on this. I find it interesting that that's a very Western conversation. It's not necessarily the conversations that folks are talking about in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Here's why. In the West, because we're in the theology of celebration, the part of the Christian narrative, the, the narrative of Jesus, the story of Jesus, that we really, really struggle with is why did Jesus suffer and die? Because we're in this affluence and comfort. Why would he embrace suffering and distress? So that's why so much ink in some cases in Western society, we fight over this because we, that's the thing we just can't understand because it's not our experience to understand why someone would suffer and die. But if you were in Latin America in the midst of a civil war, if you're in Africa in the midst of a famine, you see Jesus dying on the cross. Your instinct is not, why did he die? Your instinct is, he knows, he understands my suffering. He's right there with my suffering. And so sometimes the questions asked by African, Asian, Latin American Christianity is not, why did Jesus die? What happens with the resurrection of Jesus? That's why in certain communities that are on this side of the equation, they talk about liberation. They talk about uh, what it means to be the community going forward because they understand the crucifixion. It's, a, it's been a part of their lives for years and years. They understand why Jesus would suffer and die. They're trying to understand what does it mean now that Jesus rose again from the dead because that's not their experience. That's their experience over there. So again, a deeper Christology thicker Jesus, requires us to see that our understanding of Jesus is actually shaped by a social, uh, social reality. Because we are the haves, we understand uh, the power and the triumph and the success of the gospel, but we struggle with why did Jesus have to suffer and die? And that's when we need that other side of the story. That's what we need, the here, the, the both and, the intersection of a crucified Jesus along with a resurrected Jesus. A heaven that is very much like what we live in right now, but a heaven that is totally different from our current reality. Both of those require, are required for a shalom theology. Let's go a little deeper into the book of Lamentations. I do want to leave a little more time at the end today to, for uh, question and answer, um, but uh, let's, let's talk about uh, Lamentations as that kind of a balance to that story. Remember yesterday I talked about how we're imbalanced in our understanding of things like, uh, things like worship because we're overbalanced to, that, to this side, the, the haves and the celebration, and we're less on the side of the suffering and lament. And so let's talk about how uh, maybe the book of Lamentations offers that corrective. Uh, one of the issues is around the authorship of the book of Lamentations. Uh, historically, traditionally, uh, the authorship has been accredited to the prophet Jeremiah. And this ties into some of our conversation yesterday. I remember I mentioned that, that there was an exile, and this is the reason for this lament that occurs in the book of Lamentations. But remember I said that the exile did not take away everybody in Jerusalem. It took away the literate, the prophets, the priests, and the kings. Again, that's why we encounter Daniel and his male friends, because these are the young men who could rebuild Israel and rebuild Jerusalem. Babylon didn't want that, so they took him into exile. 
So it's possible that um, there's not a single literal person left in the capital city of Jerusalem because that would mean that there's a danger that someone could actually rebuild Jerusalem. We do know historically, however, that there was one uh, literate person who was allowed to remain. That was Jeremiah. We know this through some of the documentation. Uh, also, the book of Jeremiah attests to it. Jeremiah was allowed to remain mainly because he writes in the book of Jeremiah to uh, the, the, the people of Jerusalem, give in to Babylon. It's God's righteous judgment upon you. Give in to them. They saw this. They said, oh, Jeremiah might be on our side. Let's leave him behind. So he stays in, in Jerusalem. Um, but there's a problem. If Jeremiah is possibly, and I think this could be true, this would be true, uh, the only literate person left in Jerusalem, um, that means he wrote the book of Lamentations. But if you compare the style of writing in Jeremiah to Lamentations, you would say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like the same person at all. And the writing styles are so markedly different that there's a question about, could Jeremiah have written something like the Book of Lamentations? The joke that I use is, it's like comparing Shakespeare to Kendrick Lamar. Right? Um, I always have to gauge my audience. Bob Dylan, is that a better reference here? <laughs> Garth Brooks, I'm willing to go wherever we go with this topic. <laughs> um, Kendrick Lamar and Shakespeare, both are great writers, by the way. And only one of them did a great job at the Super Bowl. But both are great writers, uh, and only one of them has a Pulitzer. That's Kendrick. Uh, but would you say that they're the same person? No, there's definitely not the same person. Um, those of you, that Kendrick's a hip-hop artist in the LA. Anyway, uh, so you get these two artists that clearly have such markedly different styles that there's no way they're the same person. That's what it feels like when you're reading Jeremiah and Lamentations. Wait, this is just completely different genres of writing. Now, it could be that Jeremiah's kind of faking it, but, you know, it's like Shakespeare trying to fake Kendrick. It's just not going to work. So the question is then, um, well, if, Jer if Jeremiah is the author of Lamentations, whose words are they? And that's the differentiation. So Jeremiah is the only literal person, I believe, wrote down the words, but they're not necessarily his words. By the way, you'll see every once in a while the, uh, what's called the prophet, narrator, interlocutor jump in on a verse here and there. But uh, for one thing, what I argue for is that Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations is, is, is actually the most feminine book of the Bible, maybe even more than Esther and Ruth because you're actually hearing the voices from the perspective of women, right? Esther and Ruth, you're kind of getting a male perspective on a female story, but in Lamentations, it's actually women's voice, women's points of view that emerges. Jerusalem is personified as a woman. Uh, there are many, many uh, voices of women, especially the widows and, and the, uh, and the uh, moms who've lost their children. Those are the voices that rise front and center. So what's actually happening in the book of Lamentations is after the tragedy of the exile, after all the exiles have been sent away and those that are remaining are the widows, the orphans, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick, they gather at the uh, city gate, which is like the town hall of Jerusalem. And they're all there and they start speaking out their story. And Jeremiah is not in the middle. He's not in the front. He's actually in the back. And he's writing down their story. So Jeremiah, the privileged, powerful, anointed, literate prophet in the midst of the most difficult moment in Israel's history, Jeremiah shuts up and raises up the voices of women, raises up the voices of the mom, raises up the voices of the orphans, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick. And the book of Lamentations is powerful because it's not the privileged voice that speaks out at this moment. It's the powerless voice that speaks. 
So when we start talking about lament, lament is oftentimes from the most marginalized of communities. Maybe that's why we don't want to hear lament. Lament is when the least of these, the, the less privileged, the, the poorest, the most oppressed, the most marginalized, those are the voices that speak up. And is there something powerful about how the story changes when we shut our mouths as the privileged and ask to hear from the voices of the marginalized? Is that fixing the imbalance in our theology? towards one side versus the other. Um, I put it this way. This is the work of uh, Peter Senge, who um, is a, um, a business professor at MIT. I, I did campus ministry at MIT for a number of years, and a lot of the folks were talking about this book. Some of you might have read it. It's an excellent book. Not a Christian text, but an interesting text on how you understand the way the world works. Uh, side note on this, systems thinking, some of you might know, was uh, originated at MIT. It was started by a guy, uh, um, academic by the name of Jay Forrester. And Forrester was writing some stuff that he thought he was going to take to the business community. And then he realized the business community is not going to get this because there's, there were too much about values and uh, ethics and just kind of like good life that he said the business world is not going to get it. So interestingly, what Forrester did was he went to churches. So some of his earliest writings are actually like pseudo-sermons. Because he's going to churches to say, I want to teach you some of the stuff that I'm learning at MIT or, or uh, gaining at MIT. I don't think the business world is going to get this. I'm going to take it to the churches in the New England area. Turns out the churches didn't get it at all. They were even worse than the businesses. He goes back to the business community, and actually that sparks a lot of the work on systems thinking that actually has been very influential in the business community now. But one of the basic ideas is that when you have momentum moving in one direction, the growing action, now... By growing action, it doesn't necessarily mean good or bad. It's just neutral. Something is causing things to move forward. Uh, there's a momentum. There's a growing action that's pictured by the ball rolling down the hill. There is also what's called a slowing action. Now, again, this is not a value judgment of whether it's a good or a bad. It can be either. But it, the system operates that when a, a movement is in one direction, there is movement in the opposite direction. So the way I've described it, is that there is a narrative that moves in this direction, and then there are narratives that move in the opposite direction. And what we tend to do is we tend to shut out the counter-narrative because we think this narrative is always going to be good and always going to do well. And so the counter-narrative doesn't get heard, and what happens is oftentimes this narrative that grows out of control can lead to a dysfunctional narrative. Right? So... Here's an example of this. Uh, there was a narrative in American church history that said um, unlimited growth is what's good for the church. Many of you know this narrative because, and uh, I'm kind of guilty of being in the stream of this narrative because I teach evangelism at Fuller, and it was at Fuller Seminary that a lot of these narratives came out. The idea of the church growth movement, the megachurch movement, they all emerge out in the 1960s and 1970s out of Fuller, and it goes into all these different evangelical schools. But the idea was, again, it's not like explicitly said, but it's, it becomes a part of the vernacular as we want to grow and grow and grow and grow. Now, that's, again, it's not a good or a bad narrative. I'm just saying that that is a narrative that was formed in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Here's the problem with that. When the response was, the, was not there, the counter-narrative, that narrative became more and more dysfunctional. And it became growth for the sake of growth. It became... 
uh, growth and do whatever it takes to grow. And then leadership dynamics come alongside that growth dynamic. And what we've seen is that there was an absence of a counter-narrative to that momentum that we saw around church growth. And the negative culmination of that has been the last five, ten years. And we have seen, yes, we've seen a few churches that have gone through and survived, you know, have, have done okay. But we've seen a lot more megachurches completely implode. I, I, I'm not going to even list the names. You know those names. I was in Chicago. There were two churches that imploded. I mean, dysfunctional leadership, uh, growth that kind of crushed and devastated the lay people. Uh, you saw this in, in Chicago. You saw this in Seattle. You've seen, you've seen it all over the place because you had a momentum in one direction. Again, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying it was a momentum and nothing countered it. Nothing balanced it and it created a dysfunctional growth. And so that can happen with uh, our worship life as well. We are in this momentum of make people feel good in worship, make people feel better in their life, and you know, we're giving a comforting type of Christology, but if there isn't a balance that goes with that, a shalom piece of it, then we are actually creating a dysfunctional narrative. And that dysfunctional narrative ends up perpetuating because it's going downhill at such a fast rate. I'll give you a, another example of this. As you might have guessed, uh, I love movies. My son and I, we go to movies all the time. Uh, and one of the things about movies is we find that good acting makes good movies, right? Good acting. And uh, I found that there's a, a, a style of acting that seems to work for some people. It's called method acting. And like uh, Robert De Niro, uh, uh, who's the other guy? Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, Tilda Swinton, they all do method acting. And what they do is they, they get so into the character that they like act like that character all throughout. Right? So it said if you run into De Niro at a Starbucks, don't talk to him. Because if he's making a mafia movie, he actually will be in character as a mafioso all throughout. Um, actually, when De Niro was filming Raging Bull, um, he actually fought several professional fights because he wanted to get into that character. So good acting oftentimes comes out of somebody so deeply embodying that character that when it comes time to improvise, when it comes time to act reflexively in the moment, uh, the person can do it because they're so into that character. This can be good or bad. And in terms of the, uh, the, the negative of it is that so many of us have embedded and embodied some of these values and character, growth at all costs, church must grow, uh, we've got to do whatever it takes to keep the power to keep our church growing. We've embedded and embodied that narrative so deeply that our instinct and reflex comes out of that dysfunctional narrative. So that even if you don't think about it, your first instinct is, oh, we can't do that because I might have people who walk away from the church. Even though that's a biblical thing to do, care for the poor, care for the alien and immigrant among us, but if I do that, I've so deeply embedded the value of growing my church, and I don't want to lose these two or three people who are going to get angry at me. I don't want the offering to go down, because that's also an embedded value. These narratives are so deeply embedded in. When we encounter a counter-narrative, we don't know how to respond to it, and we revert to the existing embedded narrative. And that's why lament is so essential, because it creates and provides a counter-narrative to the existing dysfunctional This is where we get into the things like spiritual practices. Because what you practice is what you perform. 
right? So if you're practicing for the Olympics to do the, uh, you know, <laughs> do they do the triple jump anymore? <laughs> triple jump. <laughs> triple jump. I don't think they do that anymore in the Olympics. They do. Okay. So you're, you're training for the triple jump. You're training to jump a long distance. And then they come to you and say, um, you know, that's not, that's not what we need on our team. Could, could, could you, like, swim the, the relay back and forth? I don't know how to swim. I just know how to jump. No, but we really would like you to, to swim. Because you've been practicing for one thing, you're not ready to do another thing. And so what, you, what, what happens is you get embedded muscle memory. Your, your, your body is trained in a particular way. You've practiced a certain style and thinking and, and, and life and church life, and that gets embedded in. And so what you need is to retrain and repractice. That doesn't mean you lose that skill. It means you might need to learn a new skill that actually provides a counter to the existing narrative. Uh, one space that's been very evident is uh, we have built good, good muscles around evangelism. And as an evangelism professor, I can attest that I have about 200 books on my shelf about how to do evangelism that have been written in the last 100 years. 95% uh, of them are really bad. But we've got the books. <laughs> we've got books that says, here's, and again, we develop muscle memory and how to do it. So if I were to say, what are the four spiritual laws? Most of you might get most of it or at least figure out, oh, I, I think I know what that is. Uh, what is the Romans way? So we've actually done a pretty decent job of embedding into our common memory and common church practice this idea of evangelism. And so, again, I'm not saying we did it perfectly. I'm, I'm not saying we did it well. I'm just saying that we've done a kind of a practice over and over again in the church to figure out ways or to think about evangelism in very specific ways. But what if there was a counter that said this, and I, and I want to specify, this hyper-personalized evangelism that speaks to one person and converts one person at a time. We've, got, we've gotten the literature on that. But what if there was a counter-narrative that said, but sometimes we've got to be a better witness in our communities and neighborhoods. Because if I knock on the door of my neighbor and I say, well, do you want to follow Jesus or do you want to learn about Christianity? And they say, no, Christianity sucks, and they slam the door in my face, then I've got to realize that practice might not work anymore. Versus a practice of, what if the church were to do things for the neighborhood that said, this is what the church is about. We care for the poor. We feed the hungry. We intercede on behalf of those that are downtrodden. We create lament, spaces of lament for those that are hurting. And does that actually change what your neighbor responds to as a, as, as a member of the community? So counter-narratives, and this is, again, where lament becomes the key way that counter-narratives are lived out. I'm going to have to speed through this. Uh, but I want to talk about how Lamentations 5 kind of culminates in this, in this section where Lamentations 5 actually follows a classic lament formula. So the first four chapters of Lamentations follows more of what's called the funeral dirge. So it's a slightly different approach to lament. Funeral dirges focus on what things uh, actually are, dead body. There's a dead body, you have to deal with that. The, the movement forward occurs in Lamentations 5. So you're dealing with the, the negative history, the brokenness. You're dealing with the social reality of this is what's going wrong with us for the first four chapters. But chapter five has a shift. One, the prophet narrator completely disappears. So Jeremiah disappears altogether. And in this case, in chapter five, the people start crying out. And the people's voices are heard. And this is the only time in the entire book where the people directly address God as a classic lament prayer. And so the shift occurs in, at the end of this book 
where the people are now emboldened and empowered to speak for themselves. They don't need the prophet, narrator, interlocutor. They pray directly to God and lament directly to God. This is oftentimes missed because you're looking at all this. But this is a huge moment. The people that have been broken and have, been, and have fallen, they're the ones that now can speak directly to God. If I could say one thing about the church, if a church can say this, you've done church pretty well. Not that your voice gets elevated because your church is growing and your church is influential. Not that your voice gets elevated because you're a pastor of that church, but your church is known as the marginalized voices actually find a place where, they're, where, they're, uh, where they can be expressed. The broken people, their stories are heard. The move from Lamentations 1 to Lamentations 5. And I'll close with this story about my time at uh, Stateville Correctional Center. Um, I just moved to L.A., but um, the three and a half years prior to moving to L.A., I, I taught at Stateville Correctional Center, which is a, a super max, uh, max prison about an hour outside of Chicago. And those of you know how this works, these are actually Chicago residents who were convicted of crimes, usually from anywhere from 15 to 60-year sentences, and they are sent to this uh, max prison. Terrible conditions. Uh, we started teaching there about three, four, year, four years ago, and I went in there about three and, a half, uh, three and a half years ago to teach one of the first official classes at Stateville on behalf of North Park, which was where I was teaching at the time. And I remember walking in, and um, you can tell I'm relatively short. I'm an Asian, so I'm about 5'7", 5'8", with heels. So I'm about 5'7", five, 5'5". Five and, um, and uh, you know, if you, go to, if you ever visit these max prisons, the sad story is uh, it's about 80 to 85% African-American, 10 to 15% Latino, 5 to 10% white, it's, you know, some kind of mixture of that. But the dominant group is African-American. Uh, and also, the group that I was teaching was about that, 80, 80%, 15%, 5%. Uh, and they're also like a lot bigger than I am. <laughs> they're like 6'4", 200 pounds, they're cut. And so I, I'm trying to walk into this space saying, all right, I've got to establish some kind of power here. Because this is not going to work walking into prison with these 15 prisoners. Uh, so I did what I know, which is my education, my tenure professor, my Ivy League degrees. I walk in there and I make sure that my authority is established in that room. Uh, but something strange happened at about the eight to nine week mark. And by the way, my students were so gracious. They accepted it. They you know, were gracious to me. But at about the eight to nine week mark, uh, a lot of things started falling apart in my life. Um, if you ask me, did this happen? I would say, yeah, that actually happened. Pretty much everything that you can think of was, was happening around this time. Um, and so I, I actually couldn't keep it together in the classroom. And I'm in the classroom, and I'm trying to teach, and I'm sitting in the circle with my students, and I actually started breaking down. I just couldn't keep it together anymore. And my students knew that, that, that I was going through some stuff. Uh, and as I'm kind of starting to break down, um, I won't forget this, Corzell Cole, six foot four, 200 pounds, cut, tattoos all over his body, gold rims. He's like, yeah, this is a South Side Chicago uh, gangbanger. Yeah, this is the kind of guy you get, you're afraid of in prison. He starts coming over to me, and he bends over and he whispers in my ear, I'm going to get in trouble for this. I really think you know. And, and held me. And I just blubbered in his arms for several minutes. Um, at that moment, the power of my prophetic professorial office was non-existent. It was just two men made in the image of God who desperately clung to the presence of God. And it was Corzell who ministered to me. By the way, Corzell was released as uh, last month, 
and a clemency here. So he's now a free man who can text and come. Uh, life. And he's now living at the North Park campus, and he's now a full-time student at North Park University. Um, I remember the next week, um, uh, Hollywood Mike is, is his nickname. Uh, Mike, um, I don't know how he got it. He went online somehow at prison and learned how to say, I love you, dear brother, in Korean. That to me in class. And uh, William Jones, he's uh, 67 years old. Uh, he was convicted of a murder and uh, was put on, on, on death row. And then uh, when Illinois got rid of death row, he was, it was committed to a life sentence. Uh, so he's not, he's not getting out. There's no way he's getting out. Not at the age of But he's become the bishop of that community. He is the elder statesman of that community. And the next week he says, uh, Dr. Ra, I left something at the gate for you. I want to make sure you pick it up. This is what he left me. And he said, I, I thought of you as I'm painting this painting for you. You think I'm a black man with an afro, apparently. It's, it's, it looks nothing like me, but okay, I'll take it. So, uh, he left me the painting and he says, I believe that you were empowered to storm the gates of hell, and I wanted you to honor, uh, be honored with this painting. So that's hanging up in my dining room right now. It's one of my more treasured possessions I have. Um, this is what it means to engage lament. Not the stories of triumph but someone with a life sentence who encourages out of their life. This is what it means to hear the stories of the marginalized, have their stories speak to you. What does a church look like when lament gets engaged, changes the narrative? Gracious God, thank you for this group and for this community. Continue to do the work and call these men and women to a higher calling, to a thicker Jesus, to a deeper understanding of the gospel message so that we might be the light and salt of this world that you call us. In your name we pray.